You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. Welcome to Fireside Chats with Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Hello and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, our second episode in our Fireside Chats anthology. Early phase trials are the bedrock, the building block of all of the evidence that informs the practice of a clinical oncologist. Every medication, every chemo that we use, from pembrolizumab to infortimabvidotin, has had to have had an early phase trial that proves that it is safe. We can have the most effective anti-cancer therapy in the world, but if it harms the patient, then it really isn't doing its job. Today's episode is on an article published by The Limbic, reporting a study about streamlining this often arduous patient journey. As always, I'm joined by my colleague and co-conspirator in this Fireside Chats conspiracy, Josh Hurwitz. How are you, Josh? I'm good. I'm hoping this isn't a conspiracy episode, though, but I'm looking forward to talking about time toxicity. Well, we do like to unpack a good conspiracy, but it's not that's not what we're doing on this particular episode. No, no, it's not. Before we get into the article, I figured that we should talk about what makes up an early phase trials, and we're really going to focus on the phase one studies. So phase one studies are the often first in human studies that enable a a novel agent or a novel target to to get its foot through the door. It's that initial job interview. The main focuses of phase one studies are safety, dose finding, and side effects. When, I don't know, uh, an example off the top of my head, but when, say, pembrolizumab was determined to be efficacious at 200 milligrams every three weeks or 400 milligrams every six weeks, that was done through a phase one trial where the drug company starts at a low dose and slowly escalates based on tolerability. Side effect profiles are also established in phase one and the overall safety of different dose levels is the main focus of these studies. In most cases, they are conducted in what we call a 3 plus 3 design of dose escalation and dose expansion. So for every predetermined dose level, a study will aim to enrol three patients. And there will be a dose limiting toxicity period or DLT period during which patients have to have no dose limiting toxicities, no severe toxicities that would cause the drug to be withdrawn early. If there are DLTs in this period, then there is an expansion phase where three further patients are enrolled, mainly to see whether this is a problem with the drug or a problem with the patients. With every DLT period that is passed, a vote is taken and the dose may be escalated until the study reaches the maximum tolerated dose. And it's either at that dose level or the dose level just below it that is recommended for evaluation in phase two and phase three studies. So, Josh, the article that we're going to be talking about is talking about this concept of time toxicity, which is a big problem in these early phase studies, but do you want to expound on that? 
I would love to expand on that. So what is time toxicity? So it's a composite measure in a similar manner defined by a prior study by Gupta et al. So it's considered as those days with any physical health care system contact, including clinic visits, infusions, procedures, blood works, urgent care, overnight stays, unscheduled visits, essentially any engagement with healthcare at all is considered part of time toxicity. And this is something that is a very common, not complaint, but consideration for early phase studies because there are so many unknowns and we're focusing on patient safety rather than efficacy. So there is a lot of interaction with healthcare by necessity and and by protocol. And the other thing is that with initial first in human, no one has the true understanding of how these drugs are going to interact with patients. And the one thing a, a drug company, be a clinician and see a patient doesn't want, is a patient to die because of a new first in human novel anti-cancer therapy. Absolutely. For every pembrolizumab or I'm using infortimavidotin, a lot this episode that's just recency bias but for every drug that goes on to be a successful part of our anti-cancer armamentarium there are dozens of agents that never made it out of phase one but you're absolutely right josh because a lot of these agents are purely based on preclinical studies so studies in in vitro in or in animal models most commonly rats and mice so how they interact with humans is something that these studies are actually aiming to find out. And it's important stuff, but there's a lot of unknowns. That's it. Michael, why don't you talk us through the first part of what this study actually found? Yeah, absolutely. So this was a study published in ESMO Open by Nindra and Associates, and it is a study that was a retrospective analysis from Sydney's Liverpool Hospital. It enrolled a total of 219 patients with a median age of 65 across 36 clinical trials. Most of these patients were male, although thankfully not a large majority, because I would hope that we're sort of past that by now. Almost half were active or ex-smokers, and a large proportion of patients identified as culturally or linguistically diverse at 39%. That really speaks to the catchment of Liverpool Hospital, though. Most had an ECOG score of 1 at baseline. For phase 1 studies, you really need to be quite robust. Because of that uncertainty, there is a possibility of significant toxicity. So you need to be able to take that hit. So no phase 1 study will enroll someone who is ECOG 2 or greater. So patients spent a median of 29% of their days in direct contact with the healthcare system. These were divided into protocol-specified visits which accounted for the greatest contribution to total time toxicity as defined earlier by Josh in 46% of patients and making up 12.5% of total time toxicity for patients overall. Non-protocol specified visits, which were mainly mandatory blood tests 24 to 48 hours prior to a physician review, were the greatest contributors of time toxicity in 47% of patients that is very common in phase one studies is time toxicity reduced as patients completed additional cycles of treatment. If you look at pretty much any phase one study, the visits and the time toxicity from, uh, if, if we're using the lingo from this study, is going to 
peter out the further on you go because the rationale is that if a patient is going to have significant unexpected toxicities from these novel agents, it's going to be at the start. There was no statistically significant difference in time toxicity between dose expansion and dose escalation studies or the trials focusing on immune oncology versus targeted therapy. Lots of questions to unpack for this, Josh. It is an important question to ask. That is the first thing, because these are very intensive studies. This is something that I always say to patients is that when you're coming to a phase one study, it is probably more intensive than your equivalent phase two or phase three, because there's more patient-based and more not necessarily clinically available data that you need. There's more unknowns, Michael. I think that's the thing. It's the, the risks are higher because it's a very novel new concept and new patients and new drugs. And you're also trying to collect data on pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, which necessitates blood tests. You know, we can't collect that information clinically. And long days and close observation. Uh, I've done a lot of long PK days myself where I sit around just to monitor patients and they might be in hospital till 8pm on their, their first day to kind of assess what's happening. And that's all really mandated by the drug company rather than by the uh, clinician themselves. Exactly. And the other part of this is that we should try and make these studies as accessible for as many patients as we can. And when patients are coming to phase one trials, that generally means one of two things. It means they've received every treatment with any evidence behind it and they really don't have too many other options, or they have a very rare cancer with no approved treatments at all. Either way, you're looking at patients who are in quite a bit of strife. Now, for particularly for the heavily pretreated patients, these patients will probably want to maximise their time away from hospital because they know that their expected survival is limited, or they should know that. And so minimising patients' interaction with the healthcare system is important. But as you said, Josh, a lot of these uh, protocol-mandated visits are mandated by the drug company and the people running the study. They're written in the protocol, literally there in black and white. And with phase one studies, even more so than phase two or phase three, they're very inflexible about this, with good reason. And I don't know about your site where you've worked, but the phase one I've engaged with generally people get sent home with this information. So if they want to participate in a trial, they're actually provided with the visits, the schedule, what they actually need to do. And the complexity of time toxicity as a concept is that when you've got someone who's in their 40s, who's had their three lines of colorectal cancer therapy, and they've got three, maybe more kids, maybe less kids, maybe they don't have kids, they're going to want absolutely anything that's going to keep them alive to spend time with their children. And if that means a quarter of their days is engaging with healthcare services, that they get an extra six months, I think most people in that situation with the caveats of poor ECOG status, really unwell, will jump at this idea. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, toxicity is subjective when it comes to sort of Uh, investment of time and so what one patient deems toxic quote-unquote might not apply to another patient and then if you move to other aspects Michael I don't want to railroad you and take over but when we talk about blood tests where we kind of highlighted this a little bit 
but there's huge safety aspects, right? There's many potentially unforeseen issues, adverse events for the study drug that need to be maybe acted upon. You've got to check the kidneys, check the liver. You know, we don't even know how they're excreted half the time. And then there's the logistical aspect, right? So it's also to do with funding of the health service. So if you need bloods every three days and you go to a pathology center and that takes two hours to get a blood test versus you go somewhere else and you walk in, it's a five minute wait. And then you sort of head off for your day and you go to the beach and spend it with whoever you want to. That's a huge difference in time toxicity. One is very much easily fixed. You just need more services. Well, when I say easily fixed, in the, in, the, in the theoretical sense, you know, you need the financial backing for that. And the other side is time toxicity. I, I don't know. And I guess my question for you is this, Michael, and I'm changing a bit. Do you think having a number of days engaging with a health service and a, as an appropriate measure for what time toxicity should be? I'm not really sure, to be honest, because... The other thing as well is you do have a fairly, or you can have a fairly standard phase one protocol, I guess, a schedule of activities, as you mentioned, but they are different from trial to trial. And a a lot of the time toxicity considerations, the way they define it in this trial, as you mentioned, they're fairly unavoidable. The other thing as well is from a logistical aspect, to give the drug the blood tests need to be reviewed. That's the same with any sort of anti-cancer therapy with the potential for side effects. But there is that extra step that this drug is not a drug that is sitting in large quantities in the pharmacy. It's specifically ordered in for the patient from the drug company. And so for the pharmacy to prepare that, they need approval. And sometimes you can't wait for blood tests to happen on-site on the day or externally on the day because then you'll be running, you know, the the patient's treatment will be delayed, you'll be running late. If anything goes wrong, they might not even get treatment on the day that they need to. So, you know, you do need, sometimes there's no other way to do it than having a patient come in for bloods a day or two before so that the actual day of treatment runs smoothly. And I'll be honest, in my, my experience, coming back to your previous point, most people don't complain about this or don't find it particularly arduous. There are ways that it can be streamlined slightly. And you mentioned one of them sort of going to a local pathology service uh, can help. So it's less of a trek for patients who live far away from the trial center. But in terms of using or defining time toxicity as days engaged with healthcare, let's be honest, these are cancer patients. So they're going to have very high rates of engagement with healthcare even at a baseline, even during their standard of care treatment. And trials are by necessity. I mean, we don't do this for fun. Trials are by necessity much more intensive because they have to be, particularly early phase trials. That's it, Michael. And a couple of small bugbears of mine talking about the Limbic article, because this is, as we said previously, Fireside Chat is kind of reviewing articles in the media you know, topical discussion points, those sorts of things, is that just the phrasing and the words used. And one line they've said is that most patients were male. And I think 55 versus 45%, I don't know if you'd say most patients. I mean, yes, technically it's most patients. But if you say most people 
that came a mayor, I'd be expecting like 70, 80, 90%, just the phrasing that they've used. I think, you know, a majority of the patients is probably a better term to use. And I know this is nitpicking to the max, but I just get really, really frustrated that if I hadn't seen that and someone had said most patients are male, I'm like, well, why don't they have a better balance? But 55 versus 45%, I don't think is particularly um, unbalanced, so to speak. Which is good. I mean, that just means that we're not stuck in the 1970s, 1960s of 30% of, pa- of patients on clinical trials being female. It's That's very exactly important it. that we get the, um, get the divide right. And I think if we move on to sort of what can be done, and the article itself has mentioned a couple of things, Mikey. The first being to improve processes, streamline healthcare contact, and consider telehealth where appropriate. Now, telehealth during COVID for our phase one unit, which is one of the largest phase one units in New South Wales, which is the largest state in Australia. Uh, I don't know why I said that, but I just did for our international weird, listeners. You, weird flex, but okay. You should come it's to all, Sydney. It's got great weather. <laughs> it's, also the, it's also the largest state by population, not by area, just while we're being clear. Well, Western Australia is tiny from population. It's not the point. The point being is that like telehealth can work. I agree to that. But the other thing is that the initial cycles of any early phase trial, as a clinician, I'd be super worried not being able to see my patient on something that you know I have no clinical experience with. Michael has no clinical experience with. And if they live 400 kilometers or 250 miles from the local healthcare service, what happens if something goes wrong? That is my biggest fear with these early phase trials. And one way that we at my centre do try and assist with this, and I think a lot of centres do, and this is a problem that is not just limited to Australia. Um, America, for example, where you have pockets of population that are sort of quite sparse and sparsely spread out and you have people travelling a long way for treatment. Unfortunately, in a big country a country that's big by area, that is going to be unavoidable. But one thing that we do offer is a subsidised accommodation nearby because for, for exactly the reason that you said is that you don't want a patient to be in a, a small town with few medical services, no specialty services, and have a unusual toxicity from a drug that no one has heard of in the wider Uh, medical community, much less in the oncological community. So, you know, telehealth telehealth does scare me with clinical trials, and it doesn't happen often, we should say that for anyone who's listening. The severe dramatic side effects, they really, really don't happen very frequently, but it's the unknown and the potential for them to happen that means we're a little bit more possessive and protective of the patients. And I don't think telehealth fits in into the start of an early phase trial. Once a patient's established, you can do telehealth, you can do phone calls, whatever. But at the start, I think that those in-person visits are there by necessity. Yeah, and I think that's our our, our caveat, that I love telehealth because I think it gives people options and I think it is an important context of what we need to do to improve access to trials. But I think 
initially for early phase trials, you have to be careful. Alternatively, one of my solutions, if we want to just talk about solutions, having shared care with a local oncology service where you actually get approval for that trial at that site as well. But you have to have an oncologist who has the time and the resources to kind of keep them, you know, and that's in itself, it's a known complex kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. And it's much more complex in phase one studies. If you if you spread the unknown over multiple oncologists, then you're probably not going to get very far. It's it's also something that we should say is much less of an issue in phase three studies. You know, telehealth can be a great tool in later phase studies where the toxicity profile is well established and there's a bit of experience with the agent. But phase one studies, which this article specifically focuses on, is an area where we think telehealth is of limited help. But there are things that can be done, Josh. Um, I think the first thing to do is be very clear with patients during their initial consent visit, because informed consent should not be given only on the basis of the side effect profile, the pros and cons of going on the study, but you have to consider logistics as well. And that means travel, that means accommodation. And I have had patients who said thanks, but no thanks on the basis of logistical concerns, and that's fine. We've talked about bloods, blood tests, which was a major sort of point put forward by the article. They can be taken at external centres, more convenient to patients. And another thing, and these are, these are all sorts of trimmings and streamlinings. It's not really going to change a huge amount in terms of uh, healthcare interactions, but trying to stack investigations on a single day. So a patient comes in for a blood test and then a scan if it's um, required by protocol so that they're not coming back and forth. It's their small adjustments, but they can make a huge difference. And most importantly, they're less likely to compromise the patient's participation in the trial, compliance and patient safety. Michael, so wise, such great words of wisdom. We hope you enjoyed this Fireside Chat episode and we look forward to bringing you many more. Michael and I have a list of articles we want to talk about and we just need the time to do it. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time when we have more time. (laughs) Bye. I propose to sail ahead. I feel sure that your hopes, I feel sure that your help is with me. For to reach a port, we must sail. Sail, not lie at anchor. Sail, not drift.